Hi, welcome back to Conspiracies and Other Rants, and today we are going to be talking about the Columbine High School Massacre. If you are in school or you're involved in a school system after 1999, you would know that Columbine has made a huge influence on our safety regulations and how we go about school shootings primarily in America, because that's where it's the biggest problem. So, a basic rundown is on April 20th, 1999, Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold went into Columbine High School, killed 13, and injured 24. I'm not going to count them as a part of the carnage. If you were to count their deaths, it would be 15, but I have a particular hatred for them, so... And it was, at the time, the largest mass shooting in public consciousness, and it really, it really messed with people. I mean, even now, you can still see the influence, you can still see all of the, I mean, people now reference it, like, to this day, they still reference it, and a lot of mass shooters after Columbine have referenced them as part of their influence. So, now we're going to go a little bit into the shooters' childhoods. I think it's partially important to kind of understanding why everyone was so shocked. I mean, particularly with Dylan Klebold. With Eric Harris, there was more of a more of a warning. And we're also going to get into that. Okay, so at the time of the shooting... Um, Klebold was 17 and Harris was 18, and they were both seniors. They were days away from graduation, in fact. And by all accounts, Dylan was a normal teenager, and there wasn't a lot of signs. He was shy and quiet, but he was smart. And uh, Eric Harris, um, he was a normal kid, but he had more red flags. He... At one point, he had this website. For some reason, he had this website, and he talked about wanting to kill one of his friends, um, Brooks Brown. And that's going to come into play further on, because that was a red flag, too. Um, For Dylan Klebold, he did have a few. He wrote a paper on... um, people coming in and shooting a school and he was saying oh it's it's just a story you have nothing you need to worry about but afterwards obviously there was that was more of like a hmm and they together they were a really bad mix what they what the like general consensus is on both of them is that Dylan was more depressive and Harris was more angry, and he he lashed out more. He was more of a psychopath. They were both psychopaths, but um, Eric Harris was more so. And they got into trouble in 1998 for an incident with a van. In January of 1998, they were arrested for stealing items from a van. And they pled guilty and were put on a juvenile diversion program. Now, they went through this program for about a year. 
and um, they both finished the program, and they were not expected to reoffend. They they weren't expected to reoffend, and they just went on with their lives. Now, leading up to the attack, they had started writing in their journals about the day, about two years in advance, and they called it NBK. NBK stands for Natural Born Killers. It's a movie from the 90s. It's actually a pretty good movie. It's cheesy, but, you know. And, of course, they had to ruin that, too. Um, And they got their weapons, both legally and illegally. Um, They got one of, I think, a few of their guns from their friend, Robin. And uh, she, she was 18 at the time and not on probation, so she was able to buy the weapons for them. And they got their ammunition mostly from Kmart. Kmart used to sell ammunition, and that was up until Columbine. They used to just give out ammunition willy-nilly from Kmart. (laughs) And when it comes to their writings, they both kept journals, and that's kind of like an insight for psychologists to see that what they say, that, that Dylan Klebold was more depressive and Eric Harris was more violent It was primarily a suicide for Dylan Klebold and primarily a revenge fantasy for Eric Harris. Okay, so one of the most important parts of this is the timeline. So we're going to spend a decent amount of time going through the timeline. I've gotten some of the timeline from police reports, um, witness testimonies, 911 calls, I'm not going to be playing any 911 calls because those are particularly upsetting and I really don't want to pass on the upsetness. I'm going to try to keep it as much non-upsetting as I as I can, all right? All right, so we're going to jump into the timeline of April 20th, 1999. So around 11.10, Harrison Klebold arrived to Columbine and they park in separate parking lots. They had put bombs in their cars to detonate, so they wanted them to be in separate parking lots so that there was more of a... more confusion. They really wanted to cause confusion. And so around that time when they arrived, um, Eric Harris talks to Brooks Brown. And if you had heard what I said, Brooks Brown, he was one of the people that Eric had said he wanted to kill in his website. And that was that was a big thing. His parents had ended up calling the police about it because that's worrying that, you know, someone is threatening your child and threatening your child's life. So he talks to Brooks Brown and it kind of goes like this. So he he gets out of his car and he walks over and he tells him, he says, Brooks, I like you now. Um, they were th- Brooks was throwing around like insults towards towards um, Eric Harris. It was kind of like kind of like a lot of people do with friends. Like you'll cuss him out and stuff like that, and that's what he was doing. And he told him, I like you now. Get out of here. Go home. And so he had Brooks Brown had that uneasy feeling, and so he just he just left. He he left because he was really listening to what he said and he has no clue as to why he didn't shoot him because he had said he wanted to he was on one of his kill lists it was he was clearly planning to 
so it's it's odd that he switches around like that, right? And a lot of the things that they do doesn't make much sense considering like all of the planning that went into it. So a lot of it just makes zero sense. So around 11:14, they enter the school's cafeteria and they're carrying two duffel bags. And those duffel bags were bombs and they were meant to go off. They took a lot of inspiration from the Oklahoma City bombing and Columbine was originally supposed to be a bombing. The weapons were there to shoot survivors of the bombing itself and the bombs ended up not going off. And so they they around they left the cafeteria after they placed them in there and they went back out to the parking lot. And around um, 11.19, the first 911 call comes in from a citizen reporting an explosion three miles southwest of Columbine. They had set up that bomb to be kind of a diversion. Diversion from Columbine so that it was less obvious, you know? They wanted police to be confused. A lot of it was confusion. Okay, so around that time... They go towards the west entrance of the school, and a witness hears one of them yell, Go! Go! And Rachel Scott and Richard Castillo are eating lunch outside on the grass, kind of outside of the cafeteria. And they kill Rachel with shots to the head, chest, arm, and thigh. And they shoot at Richard, and he is paralyzed, but not killed. So he's one of the injured. And I'm going to go back through later on through the victims. I want to first go through the timeline and then go back to the lives of the victims. And so they, they enter. And Daniel Rubero, uh, Sean Graves, and Lance Kirkland are shot at. And Daniel is killed. He's one of the 13 deaths. And so then they brief, briefly enter the cafeteria Michael Johnson and Anne-Marie Hutchalter, I can't talk, they are injured. They are not killed. And witnesses hear one of them shout, this is what we always wanted to do. This is awesome. And a little side note is a lot of the things they said, they were mostly trying to mess with people. Like with Lance Kirkland, after he shot him, uh, he was saying, help me. And Klebold was like, you want help? I'll, I'll help you. And then he shoots him again. So it's really a lot of it is about messing with people and getting quote-unquote revenge. Although when it comes to being bullied and things like that, that's not revenge. It's just cruelty. Cruelty for sake of cruelty doesn't doesn't change anything it never has and it never will and around 11:24 um one of the on-duty officers um exchanges gunfire with um Eric Harris and um he shoots about 10 shots at the deputy officer and um his gun jams so after his gun jams he just he just retreats inside and uh, the deputy is still outside and around that time, um, a teacher named Dave Sanders 
um, he is upstairs herding students into classrooms and they start going upstairs and they shoot him multiple times. Now, he's going to be kept alive for hours by other students and he is one of the last to die. So he is shot and they are trying to keep him alive. That is a very important part of this. So around 11.25, a staff member named Patty Nielsen, she enters the library and she tells the students to get under the desks and she calls 911. Now that is one of the most infamous 911 calls. It lasts about 30 minutes and the parts that I heard from it, they I would not recommend you listen to it. Um, a lot of that's where they get a lot of the rundown of events in the library, other than, like, witness testimonies. So at 11.29, they enter the library. And as I said, that's the worst, worst part of the massacre. That's where a lot of the killing comes from. So they go over and they shoot and kill Kyle Vasquez. And after that, they injure a girl named Casey. And she is in pain, and they tell her to stop her bitching. They then go over to Patrick Ireland. He is one to be injured, but not killed. And they go around the library yelling things like peekaboo as they are killing people. They go over and shoot a girl named Cassie Bernal. Now, here's like a little a little tidbit about Cassie Bernal. They there was a myth for a little while that she that one of the shooters had asked her, "Do you still believe in God?" and that her reply was, "Yes, I do." And that did not happen. That was I believe it was another person that they had said that, but once it was the first story they told they kind of latched onto it a lot of the myths about the massacre the first thing that people hear is what they're going to latch onto even if it is wrong and they injure some more people they go over to a boy named isaiah shoals now he is one of the only well, he is the only Afri- African-American boy to be killed. They, of course, shout some some racial slurs at them, at him specifically, and they kill him. The next to die is Matthew Ketcher. Now, the actual girl who was asked if she believed in God... Um, was Valine Schnur, so she was, she said, oh my god, help, and Klebold asks, do you believe in God, and she says no, then she says yes, and so they latched, so the, another witness had heard that, and they latched onto that, thinking that it was Cassie Bernal, when it was not, and the next person to be killed after Lauren Townsend is John Tomlin, they then go over and shoot at some other people. 
and they are just injured. Now, a person under the table um, is John Savage. He was acquaintances with the shooters. And this is kind of how the exchange goes. Um, They asked who was under the table, and he was like, it's me, it's John. They were like, John Savage. And he said, yes. He said, hi. Hi, Dylan, what are you doing? And the response, this response always gets to me, and it really just freaks me out. After he asks, what are you doing? Klebold responds with, oh, killing people. And Savage asks, are you going to kill me? And he says, no, dude, just run. Just get out of here. So they spared him. He still doesn't know why they spared him, but they spared him. Now... After that, they kill Kelly Fleming and then Daniel Mauser. And uh, his parents are a really, they're really big activists after, after all of this for gun control. And the last person to be killed in the library is Corey DePooter. Now, after the library, they, they leave the library and they enter the science area. At this point, a lot of the people are either hiding or out of the building. So they're just shooting in empty rooms at that point. And they they return to the cafeteria. And uh, Harris shoots at some of the duffel bags that didn't go off. And he was attempting to detonate them. And at 11.46, there is a partial detonation of a bomb and a small fire. And around 12.05, they re-enter the library, and they exchange gunfire with police again. And then shortly after that, um, around 12.08, they both killed themselves. So at that point, the shooting was over. They were dead, and now it was just kind of first for the police to get into the building because they weren't in the building at all. It took them two hours, two hours to enter enter the building, and this is a decently big high school. I know that they didn't really have any training on what to do, but to me it kind of seems like common sense to try to enter as quickly as possible to first get them to stop killing people and then to get the injured and the barely still alive hanging on a thread out. And throughout all of this, Dave Sanders is in a in a science room bleeding out and they're trying to save him and one of this like most infamous signs says one bleeding to death and that was referring to Dave Sanders and the students did their best to keep him alive so he was the last to die now by the end of the day their final count of shots was 188 Harris 124 and Klebold 64 and uh, they saved those last two for themselves. And that's not counting 
the Molotov cocktails and the pipe bombs that they were throwing around the entire time. So, that's a whole thing. Now I'm going to go down the line of victims by the order that they were shot and killed. So the first killed was Rachel Scott, and uh, she was born August 5th, 1981, and she she was the first to be killed. Um, she was born in Denver, and um, she was the third of five children. Now, she's one of the most, like, when you think of Columbine, she's one of the first that tends to pop up. Now, um, she was a 17-year-old, she was a senior, and she wanted to be a writer and an actress. And um, two weeks prior, she had a lead role um, in a play called Smoke in the Room, and uh, Dylan Klebold ran the spotlight, so he was a part of it. And she, um, she had a colorful personality, and, um, she was, she had a lot of faith. She, um, she left behind diaries and journals, and, uh, a lot of her writings were addressed to God. Um, one of the things she wrote was, I write not for the sake of glory, not for the sake of fame, not for the sake of success, but for the sake of my soul. And, um, one of the themes of her writing is, um, reach, reaching the unreached, um, through acts of kindness and compassion. She was a very, a very, like, gentle soul. That's what they remember her for. And, um, one month before her death, she wrote a school essay stating, stating, I have this theory that if one person can go out of their way to show compassion, then it will start a chain reaction of the same. So, she was, she was a very, a very good person. Now, she had a brother named Craig Scott. He survived. He survived the shooting from Columbine, and, um, they got in a fight, um, the day of the shooting, and, um, they arrived late to school, and, uh, he angrily slammed the door shut, and that was the last time he saw his sister alive. He says that that's one of the biggest things he regrets. He regrets fighting with her that day, and he wishes he could have, he could have seen her more. Now, she, her body was left outside. If you, like, there are some bits of news footage where they're both dragging her body around, and it's just laying there. And she was in 2001, she was awarded the National Kindness Award for Student of the Year by the Acts of Kindness Association, and in 2006, the National Education Association um, awarded Daryl Scott and Rachel's Challenge the Friend of Education Award. And um, she she's one of the she's one of the more popular. I wouldn't say popular, but one of the more, one of the first things you think about when you think about Columbine. Now, the second to be killed is Daniel Roborough, and he was a freshman. 
um, he, he enjoyed electronics and computer games. He liked to play hockey, and he was also really big about family. Um, he's remembered as a funny guy. Um, he helped his father with um, his business um, after school and during the summer, and he uh, visited his, uh, his grandparents every summer also. And um, on Tuesdays, um, he would go over with his family and he would just, he would just be around them. And um, he was on the way out of the school building to try to get out when he was shot. Um, they tried to save him, but he uh, bled to death on the sidewalk outside the school. And he laid there for two days, two days on the sidewalk before the paramedics were allowed to move him. So like Rachel Scott in the news footage, he's lying there too. And uh, his family was kept in the dark about what happened to him. Um, law enforcement told him that they didn't know for certain that the body on the sidewalk was him, and they wouldn't let the family check for themselves. It wasn't until the morning after the shooting they found out. Um, they found out through the morning news, not because police told them. They found out through the news that their son was dead. And that's one of the things that disgusts me, too. Because when it comes to these things, the family deserves a sense of closure from officials and not from the news. The news doesn't need to go around being saying, oh yeah, these are the people that were killed before the officials tell the family. Now, an interesting little thing that kind of helped the family cope is they took that piece of sidewalk where their son died and they made a swing. They made a swing um, on top of that little piece of, that little piece of concrete. It's, it's disgusting how, how they, they dealt with his death. It's disgusting how they dealt with a lot of these victims' deaths. I mean, the officials specifically, it's disgusting the way they went around him. And he was murdered by um, Dylan Klebold. Now, the next to be killed was Kyle Vesquez. Um, he was born May 5th of 1982. Um, he was 16, and he was a sophomore. He had started attending Columbine um, three months before the shooting. Um, they said that he was a simple, he was a boy of simple sincerity and a genuine heart. Uh, he was a happy boy and he was about six feet tall. Um, they remembered that he liked ice cream and he loved cats and tortillas. Um, the official report says that he was the only student not hiding under a desk or a table, but that's, like, wildly, like, disputed, because a lot of it isn't, it's all hearsay, you know? Um, they, he, when he was a baby, he had a stroke, and that left him, um, disabled, and he also had severe asthma. Um, his parents were ready to take care of him and that uh, he would accompany his mom everywhere, um, even while she ran her errands, and his last words were her, to her were, goodbye, I love you, mom. 
and uh, he he loved computers and that's where he was when they came into the library he uh he wanted to um enter um the military and he was known as a big teddy bear the next to be killed in the library is Stephen Kurnow. Uh, he was born August 28, 1984. Um, he was a freshman, and he was 14. He was a Star Wars fan, and he wanted to become a Navy pilot. Um, he liked soccer, and he wrote this shortly before his death. My favorite place is a soccer field because I, I am feared as a player and respected as a ref. I take all of my anxiety on the ball and the whistle and it is good exercise. Um, so he, he did soccer, and he, um, his favorite classes were Spanish, technology, and gym, mostly because he liked to play sports. Um, his favorite Star Wars character was Han Solo, and uh, he, he was remembered as a huge fan, and he, um, he had seen the movie so many times that he could recite the dialogue along with the actors. I, I find that so so funny. Um, he was he was under a computer desk when he was killed. Um, his sister said that she was going to miss fighting with Steve over whose turn it was to take out the garbage and whose turn it was to use the computer. She wondered who would tell the stories to her own children about what she was like growing up. She'd been counting on her little brother for that. And her mom wrote a, a letter. To, his mom wrote a le letter to Steve at the funeral. Thank you for the special moment two weeks ago when you said, "Mom, I bet there aren't many guys who can discuss things with their moms like we do." And he was buried in a cemetery in Denver, Colorado. So the next to be killed was Cassie Renal, and she was born November sixth, nineteen eighty one. She was 17 and a junior at the time of her death. Um, she, for a short period of time, she kind of went into this bad place for her mental health, and they sent her away on a retreat. And she came back, and she, she felt much better, and she was known for just being a gentle, a gentle person and a loving person. Now, that whole that whole myth about her being like the Christian martyr, although it wasn't true. She was known for being faithful, and she was very loved, and she was very, she was a very, she was a very beautiful person. The next person to be killed was Isaiah Scholes. He was born August 4th, 1980, and he was 18 and 411 at the time of his death. He liked to lift weights, play football, and joke around. He wanted to be a comedian, and he also dreamed about being a music executive. He was going to attend Denver Institute of the Arts. Um, he was popular, and his classmates would compete to work on school projects with him. Um, one of his parents said, Isaiah Scholes, thank you for being such a positive impact on our school and on our family. You'll be greatly missed, and I love you, my dear child. And he was the last of the victims to be buried, and he was laid to rest um, in Denver, Colorado. Um, Martin Luther King um, III, the son of Martin Luther King Jr., spoke at 
is Isaiah's funeral. And a part of his death was racially based, sadly. Um, Eric Harris was known for being a racist, and he was anti-Semitic too. And it's awful. Now, the next victim to be killed was Matt Ketcher. He was born February 19th, 1983, and he was in the library studying with Isaiah Scholes and Craig Scott. And he was a 210-pound sophomore. He played on the offensive and defensive lines of the football team. Um, he was remembered for his laugh. He was a weightlifter and an A-plus student, and he was all, always getting good grades in school. One of his friends said, when I heard that he was one of the ones in the library, it only made sense. He was always in the library studying. He always put academics first. He had straight A's, but he would never brag about it. I kind of looked up to him because of it. He was never in a bad mood. He was consistently happy. And his parents wrote in a statement for his funeral that he was a wonderful role model for his little brother. He was going to attend the University of Colorado, and um, the university sent his younger brother Adam one of their jerseys that had Matt's name on it and the number that he wore, and the number he wore was number 70. Um, they all wore ribbons bearing his old jersey number when they were asked to dedicate the next season to Matt's memory for his funeral service. And he was just known for being happy. Now the next to be killed was Lauren Townsend. She was born January 17th. 1981 and she was a senior and the captain of the girls varsity volleyball team and her mom coached the team um she was a member of the national honor society and she was a candidate for valedictorian of her graduating class she liked to sketch too um so she was known for volunteering at an animal shelter and she planned to major in biology at colorado state university when she graduated um, she, on top of after she had finished studying in college, she hoped to be a wildlife biologist. The next to be killed was John Tomlin. He was born September 1st of 1982. He was a sophomore, and he was 16 at the time of his death. Um, he worked after school at a local nursery, and he hauled trees. Um, he belonged to a church youth group. Um, his family and friends remembered his energy and the warmth of his smile. He loved Chevrolet trucks. He had recently got his driver's license and had just bought a Chevy-like pickup that he had been working for since he was 14. And um, he was just known for four-wheeling and lifting weights. He was the perfect son, his father said. He was just good. You had asked him to wash a car. And he'd wash both cars. The next victim was Kelly Fleming, and she was born January 6, 1983. So she was 16 and a sophomore at the time of her death, and she was already working on her autobiography. Um, they had recently moved to Colorado from Phoenix, and um, she was shy and she was creative. 
She loved Halloween, and she was an aspiring songwriter and author, and she wrote many poems and short stories based on her life experiences. So she she was writing her autobiography on her home computer, and um, she she was often happy. Uh, she was learning to drive, and she wanted to get a job at a daycare. She wanted to buy a Mustang or a Corvette. She wanted to be able to drive so she could return to Phoenix or go on road trips. And she loved books about vampires, and she she entered a lot of writing contests. And her mom said um, she remembered her coming home from school two months before the shooting and saying, I'm not shy anymore. The next to be killed was Daniel Mauser. He was born June 25th, 1983. He was a sophomore at the time of the shooting. Um, he was he was very good in math and science, and he got straight A's on his last report card. Um, his dad remembered him as a smart young man who wasn't afraid of challenges and wasn't ashamed to hug his parents. Now, he was shy, but he had a gentle soul. He was lovable and loving. Um, he was close friends with his sister. He liked pepperoni pizza, playing video games. And he loved shows like The Simpsons and X-Files. He was fond of trivia and knowledge games, and he liked to swim and hike. He also ran cross-country. Now, he also volunteered um, at the Swedish hospital, and he was preparing for his confirmation in the Catholic Church. Now, he was also in the library around his death. Um, He ended up, he was trying to stop Eric Harris, so he pushed the chair towards him to try to stop him. And, um, a little, a little strange little tidbit is that, um, a few weeks before uh, the shooting, he asked his parents about gun control. And, as you know, I'm kind of a spiritual person, so I wonder if a part of him knew I'm not exactly sure, but maybe a part of him knew that something was coming, even if he didn't know exactly what. The last victim in the library was Cory DePooter. He was born March 3rd, 1982, and he was 17 at the time of his death. Um, He was a former wrestler, and he loved to hike, golf, hunt, and fish. He also loved inline skating, but uh, fishing was his passion. Um, his friend, someone that he used to fish with, he said it was times he didn't do well that his personality really shined. Another one of his friends said, when you're going fishing or camping, I know he's going to be right there, watching and making sure you're doing everything right. So he put schoolwork above everything else. And um, he was hiding under a table when he was killed. Um, Another person said about him, people said he was the kind of guy people just like to be around. I know I sure did. Corey was always able to pick our spirits up in a gloomy situation. He was saving up to buy his first car, also, around the time of his death. Now, Dave Sanders was the third to be shot, but the last to die, and he was the only teacher to pass away. He was born October 22, 1951. He was a computer and a business teacher, 
Um, he was there for 25 years, and he was a coach of the girls' basketball and softball teams. His students said he was a teacher, a friend, and a mentor, and an inspiration. So when the gunman started firing outside, he ran into the cafeteria and sounded the alarm. He, um, him and two of the school janitors tried to help, and they got more than 100 students out of the path of danger and herded them away from the sh shooters. He saved an untold amount of lives that day. And um, the cafeteria was nearly empty because of him by the time that they entered they entered the school and um he was shot upstairs and around the time um one of the some of the students that were hiding in the science room took him in and um one of the most like rememberable images um was a sign in a window that said one bleeding to death and um, for three hours, that sign was ignored. And despite the efforts to save him, he died from blood loss. Um, his last words were, tell my family I love them. He left behind his wife, four children, and five grandchildren. Um, he was a huge fan of Green Day and Blur. Um, Dave's daughter, Angela, said at his funeral, what you did in that school on Tuesday was an amazing act of heroism. Even after you were hurt, you continued to be the brave, selfless man we all know you are. He, um, he has received a softball field at Columbine and a scholarship named after him to honor his memory, and he received the, Archer, the Arthur Ashe Award for Courage. Now, after all of the victim stuff, a lot of this is just gonna be like my thoughts as they come to me, you know? So they're not really gonna be very organized, so so bear with me. So I had mentioned something about a story that, um, that one of the boys had wrote. Um, it was a story about a shooting and um his teacher she had said great details and well done those were the first few lines describing the scene and she said quite an ending she put in the final line she also included this note i'm offended by your use of profanity in class we had discussed the approach of using and then it's blurred out also i'd like to talk to you about your story before i give you a grade you're an excellent writer and storyteller but i have some problems with this one and he replied to her, it's just a story. And um, she had provided to the police on the day of Columbine, she said that it was the most vicious story she had ever read. And about two weeks later, she talked again to the police. She said she had spoken to Dylan's parents at length about the essay. Kelly stated that they did not seem worried and made a comment about trying to understand kids today. So that's, that's a whole nother thing. Um, Eric Harris also wrote in essay on gun control too and these things I mean for Eric Harris it's less for his essay it's kind of less obvious but now if you were to write a story about shooting up a school that would be very telling and I, I get the I get that they didn't know but at a lot of the same time 
it's just, it almost seems blatantly obvious, you know? And I, I know that people don't know until looking back on it, but it still just really shocks me. It's, it's just kind of upsetting. Now, here's a little, I read this book, and it's called Jeff Cass, Columbine, A True Crime Story. So that's where I'm getting a lot of the information, and this little, this little bit from it was particularly interesting to me. Eric and Dylan were uncharacteristically successful school shooters, not because they killed so many others, but because they killed themselves. School shooters often crave suicide. They mention it in their writings or ask to be killed once captured. And um, where school shootings dominate, suicide rates um, are above average. Um, it's a lot of the time it's anger and wanting to die. But I, I personally don't get making an effort to go out and kill people who really haven't done much. They do say that there was bullying involved in Columbine, but I, I have been bullied severely. But at no point did I consider killing, killing others. They, they had a kill list, and they didn't even kill the people that they had really talked about killing, you know? Now, I'm going to talk a little more about Isaiah Scholl's family. Um, they they um, did a lot after he died. Um, so they had, they had gone to, they kind of had like a battle with uh, the media at the time. Um, and they they were really they were thinking that he wasn't going to be dead. They didn't want to accept it. Um, and when they kind of came to acceptance of his death, um, the parents said they would not seek revenge. And they said, because God said, "Let all vengeance be mine." Um, they did they did speak against violence a lot, and they were they were on Oprah at one point that's that's another that's another really huge thing they they got on oprah and they they did have a battle with the media i mean but when it comes to the battle with the media it was very it was it was earned it was earned they immediately started helicoptering around columbine that's where a lot of the footage of like the shooting comes from and a lot of the death a lot of like images of people on sidewalks them running away like if you do look for like footage a really popular thing is students running away with their hands on their heads um and it it, it was a horrible way they they um dealt with it and they were they were worried when they hadn't heard from their son um, they were trying to enter the library, and they were telling them that they couldn't. And uh, they really, really, really wanted to be there. Now I'm going to kind of talk about the families of the shooters on the day of the killing. Um, I read the book by Klebold's mom, 
and I had I had very mixed feelings about it. While I understand that was her son, and she misses him despite what he did, um, a lot of the ways that she kind of painted it as really just mostly a suicide kind of upsets me because it was while it was a suicide it was a homicide first the homicide is the biggest part of it and it almost seems like she ignores that in a way um it did take her a few years to really come to terms with the fact that he killed people um she talked about um reading well not reading seeing the basement tapes um and how that really opened her eyes and if you don't know what the basement tapes are the basement tapes were um kind of almost a video essay into their planning period and up to the day that they carried it out. Um, those will never be released to the public because that would give more of an insight than there already is on what they did and there are already so many copycat shootings about Columbine. A lot of shooters have cited Columbine as almost their inspiration, which is disgusting. And I'm going to move on to kind of the Harrises. There's not a lot about the Harrises because the Harrises haven't really talked about the day. Um, while Sue Klebold, she wrote a book, um, the family of Eric Harris hasn't really spoken much. But um, before the police came to the home of Wayne Harris, uh, he called 911 and he said, This is Wayne Harris. My son is Eric Harris, and I'm afraid that he might be involved in the shooting at Columbine High School. And the police dispatcher asked, Involved how? And he said, He's a member of what they're calling the Trenchcoat Mafia. Have you spoke to your son today, Mr. Harris? No, I haven't. Have they picked up anybody yet? They're still looking for suspects. And later, um, they, the dispatcher said, Your son is with who? What gang? They're calling them the Trenchcoat Mafia? I just heard that term on television. And when you look into this, um, a lot of the, another myth is the whole trench coat mafia thing. Um, the shooters weren't a part of that school group. While they knew people who were in it, they were not in it. So it kind of, they, the media messed that one up too. So there's not, there is... Wayne Harris's um, journal entries, but I didn't write much on that. I just thought it was interesting how even he kind of denied up until the shooting that his son was dangerous, even though his son was more angry. And he was, I mean, he had a website saying he was going to kill these specific people. There was a lot of anger in him. Now I'm going to insult the police action even more because if you if you know anything about me I'm I'm very strong on um how awful the police are I'm not even going to sugarcoat it I'm not even going to sugarcoat it I like they they make me mad beyond belief especially when it comes to true crime 
because most of the time when cases are messed up or when it comes to mass shootings when more people die it's because the police suck they have sucked i'm getting too mad all right okay so in the police reports a lot of the time they lied so when i was reading through the police reports i couldn't simply rely on the police reports i had to look other places as well which already is insane because you need to be giving these families actual information in the first place and like a few hours like like every half hour they would uh, leave the briefing area and they would gather more information from investigators but um it, there was never enough time to answer the questions from reporters um it it was insane um it was not meant to be a story about an otherwise obscure suburban Colorado Sheriff's Office. It was and is a story about what motivated two teenage suburban killers and what we might need to learn to stop school shootings. But we needed the photos, videos, and documents amassed by the sheriff to pl plumb the killer's motivations. The problem was that the sheriff simply would not, would not give them up or said certain items didn't exist or twisted the story about what really happened. And almost as soon as they responded to the shootings, police were criticized for not entering the school quickly enough. That, too, would now have to be taken up. Um, the sheriffs wanted to keep the truth a secret, and I'm reading directly from the book. It says, so beginning on day one, an information war began. The media, other government agencies, and even fa victim families were forced to sue, prod, and poke for answers. This fight sparked often successful lawsuits and publicly shamed the sheriff's office and triggered five outside investigations, the 2000 and 2001 Governor's Review Commission, the 2002 Joint Colorado Attorney General and Jefferson County District Attorney Task Force, and the 2002 Review of the El, pa El Paso County Sheriff, and the 2003 and 2004 Colorado Attorney General's investigation. Um, so they, they lied. They, a lot of the times, I mean, they said that they, they tried to say that they entered the school around the time that the killers died, but they did not at all. And they tried to cover up the fact that they left victims' bodies either, like, lying out in the public. If it's inside of the building, I understand a little bit more because you don't quite know what's going on yet, and you don't want to move that. But when it comes to victims who are clearly visible from helicopters and news footage, you need to move those, or at least cover them up. These people deserve dignity because they did not get dignity in their death. They were killed ruthlessly, and they deserve a bit of respect from the police who are supposed to quote-unquote serve and protect um uh brian broborough who um whose son daniel when he died at columbine he told the alternative denver weekly westward we were planning a funeral while while we were planning a funeral these guys were already planning a cover-up which is disgusting they left they left his body they left daniel's body 
on that concrete for two days, and his parents didn't find out that he was dead from the police. Think about that from, like, your family perspective. Think your family member has died, and you don't know they're dead. All you know is that there was something bad happening where they were, either work or school or something like that, and that they could be injured. You don't know where they are. It's all confusion. But then you find out that your son is dead from the, from the press. You see your son's body through news footage. I cannot imagine how much pain the police have caused cause the parents and family victims they they were saying oh we didn't have time to to plan like the way we were going to enter the building we didn't know enough information but there were so many calls coming in at that point and patty nielsen's call um the woman from the library that gave a ton of information to the police they they knew that there were only two shooters at that point. They they almost kind of knew their movements at that point. And they were in there for about 30 minutes the first time they were in the library. So if they had just moved, because at that point there was a SWAT team, I believe, they could have stopped, stopped it. And the reason Dave Sanders died was because the police ignored the sign saying that he was bleeding to death. They ignored that for three hours. They don't know how many people are injured and could be dead, could be dying at that point. Why wouldn't they just enter the building? That's the same thing with Parkland for me. Parkland, it's more recent and I don't like to look into it because it really freaks me out. I mean, Columbine does freak me out to a point, but I feel like because it's been so long, there's a little bit of a disconnect, you know? But when it comes to Parkland, the the police officer ran away. Ran away while there are children dying. 17 people dead. And that officer ran away. And they technically don't have to protect and serve, like... They love to say that they do. They love to say, oh, we are here to protect and serve. But they don't. They literally don't. Um, he had realized, like, they, one of the officers had realized, um, it was one or two days after the shootings that Hicks realized that he had crossed paths, paths or to speak, with Eric Harris before Columbine. There were so many, so many signs um, and this writer of the book, when they were trying to get information, um, the police were ignoring them because they didn't want to give out the information they wanted to say it didn't exist or was it was already out to the public. Um, in the sheriff's department, okay, so the sheriff's department retained its own copies of the documents, but they had never before released them. The sheriff also purged the originals although investigators concluded that they had been properly destroyed under records retention policy. But why would the sheriff withhold and then destroy such key documents related to the state's biggest criminal investigation? 
Um, only one report survived, and that was from 1998, and that was on the Harris Affidavit. So they were already getting rid of information, hiding information, lying to people, which is insane to me. So that's that's a whole thing. It pisses me off to no end because they they love to say that they protect and serve. Now that I'm getting to the end here, I'm just going to give you some like information if you would like like more. Um there is this I have this um documentary maker. I love him more than anything. And he made Bowling for Columbine. That was made in 2002. It's a really interesting um it's a very interesting documentary if you want to know more about gun control and the more political side of things. If you are more into that like I am, I'm not going to rant about gun control as much. I probably will in a little bit, but um, I'm not going to rant about it as much. It's a really good one. And that's where I found out about um, the Kmart bullets. Um, some victims who had Kmart bullets in their body still, um, they were obviously angry that uh, Kmart was still selling them. So um, he was taken in and talked to the people at Kmart and um, they stopped selling Kmart bullets after that. Um, now I'm gonna kind of a little bit, a little tiny bit rant about gun control. Now, I don't think fully getting rid of guns is going to do anything. I mean, it will significantly lower gun deaths because they say, oh, illegal guns, they'll still get illegal guns, but yes, you can get illegal guns, but shootings don't happen as often. Nowhere as often as they do here in America. I am... I made a little map about mass shootings since Columbine in America, and it's insane how much of America is unmarked there. And I think if we were to regulate guns more, these this would happen less. It would happen significantly less. And I know that people are so selfish about wanting their guns, especially the NRA. All right, here's a here's a little little tidbit from Madison. Um, so Marilyn Manson. I love that man with my entire soul. Um, he was told to be one of the artists that the shooters listened to, although they really didn't listen to Marilyn Manson that much. They didn't like him that much. Um. He canceled his tour shortly after Columbine to give respect to the victims because he was being blamed for the death of the victims. Now, the NRA didn't. They came to Denver anyways. Now, if that doesn't just say how much selfishness there is there, I don't know what will. There were people in pain family's mourning, and they just decided, ah, screw it, we'll, we'll go anyways. Makes zero sense to me. But, 
I guess they don't have to make sense. And another another thing is the things that were really blamed um, for the shooters because you know after a horrific thing like that it's all looking for answers everybody wants answers um, it was either the few things that were blamed it was either rock and roll so the music which does not make a killer in my opinion um, violent video games and movies which does not make a killer and also guns too and that also that also does kind of make a killer because if they're already angry and it's easy enough for them to get weapons they're going to grab onto those as quickly as humanly possible um so everyone was throwing around blame Marilyn Manson is still really blamed for the for the shooting um a significant amount actually which I didn't know about I was raised on um Marilyn Manson and a lot of a lot of rock artists and things like that so I I didn't know about that until um I started looking into it because as a high school student myself um Mass shootings are sadly a big part of the school culture because we have lockdown drills, we have these plans, but really how much of it is going to stop it if we don't regulate these things. So I think by me slightly understanding events and understanding history, I can kind of get a sense of almost safety. It it does terrify me, the thought that I could be killed. That I could be killed going to a movie, going to school, going anywhere because a person is angry and they grab a hold of a gun. I got a call so I had to I had to pause for, for a short minute. But um it, it does terrify me that I could I could be killed literally anywhere here in America because a person can get a gun and um I was I was about I was in elementary school when Sandy Hook happened and I I was talking to my mom and she said that um it really did terrify her because a man came into an elementary school and killed elementary students those elementary students had done nothing they did nothing to that man but because he was angry and he got a hold of the gun, he could. He also uh, stated Columbine as, as um, kind of a, almost a thing that he could base it off of, which is disgusting. And, alright, now that my brain's on it, we're gonna go on a small little tidbit. Um, those girls and guys who think Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold are amazing, are gods, they love them. I don't get it. I will never get it because that's why I wanted a lot of the time to focus on victims and I hope I did okay on focusing on victims because there's a lot of like confliction in information on them. Um, I don't want to just focus on them.
they that's what they wanted they wanted fame and that's kind of what these girls and guys are giving them they're they're giving them that that god complex that oh this man was so amazing they weren't they were horrible people and they were so childish to harm people for what if you're angry and you've been bullied and you think you've been wronged don't take that out on people who really didn't do anything to you these people are people and they have families and i mean in dave sanders case he has children they are they are people and they are loved and they decided to take that from those families and i cannot imagine how much that hurts for the victims families to know that they are getting what they wanted that they are getting notoriety and love and support and that they're being called heroes for what they did what they did was not heroic it was cowardly it will never be heroic it will always be a coward's move a heroic move is to pick up that pain and move on they were so close to just graduating if they had just put away that pain and that anger that they had they could have graduated and been done with it they there was no reason no significant reason that they should have done what they did but they did it anyways and so when i get i get sent cuz my my friends they know that it makes me mad and i also sometimes will just go out looking and I'll, I, I just want to get through to these people. I want to let them know they are not heroes. They are not lovely. They were monsters. And of course they don't see that. They only see what they want to see in that tiny little box. And in that tiny little box, they have painted an image of them that I think that they almost think that they can live with. They say, oh, we know, we know that they did what they did, but, but, that's always what they say. They always say, well, they, well, they did this, but, there is no buts in this situation. It is, they are monsters, and really, if you feel a sense of love for them, you need to deeply look into yourself, because... There is something wrong there. You could have anyone who is not a mass killer. But that's what you want. And I do not understand that at all. No matter how much I try to understand it, I just cannot. And it's it's horrible. It's horrible that these families have to deal with knowing that that's a thing that they call themselves columbiners that columbiners are a thing it's disgusting it's oh my god okay 
I think I can get off of my high horse a little bit, and um, if I'm gonna link some more information in the description of the podcast about like some of the places that I got my information from, maybe some book names, if that would interest any of you. Um, when you are looking into this, do be very careful if you are like if you are scared by gore or um, just hearing like those 911 calls, do not go looking for them. Um, I didn't think it was going to upset me, but it did. So I, I would suggest that you don't look for that. You can look for the basic information if that's what interests you. Um, there are multiple documentaries on Columbine. Um, from like survivors and just like the basic rundowns of the day if that's what would interest you um so yeah uh thank you for being here to listen to me rant and try to understand something that i can't really understand um thank you and i'm out